For January 31st, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 135, Too True, Too Gritty. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink all manner of things, including the Oscars. And they're off. In the first place, it's King's Speech with 12 nominations, followed closely behind by The Social Network with Jesse Eisenberg's awkwardness, and the following by half a length, it's The Fighter with Christian Bale slimming down again and bulking up and slimming down and bulking up and slimming down. No. Uh, if you <laughs> stop right there, I want to know. Before you go any further, do you love me? Never mind. <laughs> Oh, I was trying stuff. to. I was, was going for. Jump in there with the uh, with the meatloaf part. I was yeah. go- <laughs> just with the rest five minutes of this podcast. Let me take a uh, singing paradise by the dashboard. I was oh, going for. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Will you love me? Will you love me forever? Will you love me? Um, I was going for a horse race and not for the. Uh... Not for a baseball thing, but that's but that's okay. We are rounding the basis of cultural commentary, uh, going all the way with analysis <laughs> of uh, of this year's Oscar nominees. This is our Oscar pre-show. Bam! If you were going to win an Oscar for Best Actor, who would you play? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you just set out, if you set out and were guaranteed an Oscar <laughs> for Best Actor. What would you want it to be for? What real-life personage or imaginary personage uh, would you play? Peter Fenzel, uh, over to hey. you. And the, and the nominees are Peter Fenzel. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it's, there's, all that, there's all the cliches about the different kinds of parts that people play to get Oscars. Um, I, I feel like I'd want to be in some sort of historical period piece, I think, though. And, and just like, like some sort of really prestige biopic. Uh, but, but, but like one of those prestige biopics where it's made like unnecessarily salacious, where it's like, oh, like we learn about all of this shady underpinnings and the wheelings and dealings behind like this is powerful and important historical figure. Something like the aviator, right? Like, uh, where it's like, oh, it's, it's Howard Hughes and he's, he's doing that stuff. Um, and actually, you know what? Maybe that's what I would do. Maybe I would be in a movie called Orville about uh, about Orville Wright. Ooh, no! <laughs> about Orville Redenbacher. <laughs> it would be it would be a, a really powerful sort of like sexual fantasia biopic about how Orville Redenbacher decided to become a popcorn magnate. Do you think and Orville? Do you think Orville Redenbacher has a giant pool full of popped corn kernels that he like <laughs> does it with supermodels in? <laughs> well, well, Orville Redenbacher doesn't have anything now because he's dead and has been for a few years, but if you're asking if he did, well, maybe his heirs do, his equally geeky-looking heirs, who I think have cultivated that sort of weird, geeky look in his honor. Right. I hope that he had some sort of, like, rosebud-like thing as a child, like either a foil on which he cooked his first corns when he was growing up in Brazil, Indiana. Or maybe... (laughs) (laughs) See, I'm already doing research for the part. I'm really getting into it. Uh, Or maybe he attended Purdue University. Or maybe when he wore a bow tie, which he did for much of his life. I feel like the uh, the Orville Redenbacher story, when we really find out all the different things he was involved in, like, where was he during the Kennedy assassination? Like, nobody asks that question. Like, I feel like that would be a really powerful scene. I would want to see that. <laughs> like, it- He's probably making popcorn, right? Like he's making popcorn somewhere and he just watches the the popcorn kernels pop as like the scions of like Camelot are taken down by hatred and gunfire. He actually he can't even he can't even hear the gunfire because the popcorn is popping too loud. (laughs) That's right. He's like (laughs) at the book depository and he doesn't hear anything because he's like focused on his popcorn and it plagues him for the rest of his life. Um, and I feel like uh, if we could play over Redenbacher, really give, really breathe life in them. I him, see him as sort of like an I, Claudius meets Richard Lewis character. <laughs> like, sort of like very wise, but also self-deprecating and funny with a beautiful hairdo. Uh, I think that it would be – I think this would be pretty awesome. And you get to, to have really, really realistic recreations of various towns in Indiana during the 1970s, which would, I think, really captivate everybody uh, who was watching the movie. I, I feel like – I think this would be a really, really powerful uh, performance that would teach us all a little bit about the human spirit. And also the product placement would be gold. <laughs> real easy. It's <laughs> just real easy to get product placement in that movie. So we'd, we'd make a bank while get making a prestige picture. So. Excellent. <laughs> 
And the nominees continue with Mark Lee. All, right, all of my answers are offensive in different ways. Um, <laughs> they are they are jokes oh, to varying degrees, though. I'm going to go through, uh, let's see here. One option would be to play like the only Asian guy in the Holocaust. Um, I would be like, I don't know, in a camp or something like that and uh, helping people escape or something like that. Definitely wouldn't be a Nazi. <laughs> with your powers, with your, your powers of martial arts. Yeah, or, you know, uh, elocution or, or craftiness. Dude, is there, are there martial arts movies of like a kung fu guy escaping from a concentration camp? Because that would be awesome. Probably. <laughs> if I know anything about, you know, the internet yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and people that are on it, then probably, yeah. Well, well actually, Fenzel, the, the 2008 martial arts movie, Ip Man, about the founder or, or the, I guess, progenitor of the Wing Chun style of kung fu, Ip Man, uh, is about a guy who, you know, invents a style of kung fu during, or, or really the, the crux of the story is during the Japanese occupation of China. So, you know, the, you know, the, the city he lives in, Foshan, is occupied by Japanese soldiers, and, you know, he uses his kung fu to help, uh, to help out, you know, resistance groups. So, to answer your question, sort of, yeah. yeah. Well, but, but, um, but Wing Chun Kung Fu is also one of the only kinds of Kung Fu that's still formally allowed under the Chinese government, right? Like, the, they shut down the Chaolin Temple, and, like, they've, they've shut down a lot of the traditional stuff. So it's kind of sad that it's, like, this nationalistic thing. I mean, but it would be kind of cool if he's fighting Nazis, too. I mean, I guess it's cool if he's fighting the Japanese, but I don't know. That, just, that doesn't have as much punch as him, like, him and Roberto Benigni, like, teaming up. He, uh, he, that's, that's, that's kind of a, a Western worldview. To a, lot of, to a lot of Chinese people, the Japanese were Nazis. Well, yeah, but the, I know, but that's real. Not I'm talking about like fictional Nazis, like fictional Nazis. <laughs> like the Pete, I, I don't know how better to ex- I don't know how better to explain this to you. The Japanese to the Chinese, circa World War II, were were Nazis in the same way that Nazis are Nazis to us. Like, <laughs> so, is there a movie clear. where like Jackie Chan throws a guy out of a window of a zeppelin and is like, no ticket? <laughs> And that's, that's what World War II means. To, no, it doesn't. Uh, I think I think that there's a case to be made that like that the Nazis in fiction have so completely like distanced themselves from anything that related to reality that uh, that it's like it's its own sort of like, fictive mythological like beast. Um, and also, I think I like fish out of water kung fu movies where like the the protagonist is the sort of everyman protagonist is is in a really strange environment. And from my perspective, as like a Western oriented movie viewer, like something to a nationalistic movie taking place like in mainland China, you know, during the occupation by the Japanese, like that feels like it would be very comfortable. And like there wouldn't be that sense of daring that I tend to like from my kung fu movies. You know what I mean? In that case, so so Pete, I will deliver it. Then I will do like. Um, you know, Shin Fung's list, or or something like that. It'll be awesome. I, I told you it's gonna be offensive. I told you, I'm not even done being offensive yet with my crazy ideas for how I'm gonna win uh, the best actor Oscar. Uh, next on the list is okay. is Kim Jong Il. Obviously, I mean, it kind of has to be put out there. Um, I think uh, like a Kim Jong Il biopic is really just kind of terrible. <laughs> to do it. No, Team America World does not count. Mark Lee in So Ronry, The Life, The Rife and Ruvs of Kim Jong Il. <laughs> I go, I, I, I told you there'd be, there'd be offense, th- things to take offense to. Okay, the last one is, um, it could be considered offensive, but it's really not much of a joke. I would love to play Marvin Gaye in a Marvin Gaye biopic because I don't think that's been done yet. Is it called gay? <laughs> I think you might have a problem with the marketing. <laughs> the marketers are like, it's great. It rhymes with Ray, you know, that other music biopic that won an Academy Award. Yeah. Ray and gay, and you watch them back to back. <laughs> That'd be a great double feature. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Would you be blind like Marvin Gaye was? <laughs> no, I, I would be. I would be shot with. I would be shot with a shotgun by my drug addicted father, like Marvin Gaye was. Oh, yeah, man. that happens. Should make a alert. alert. His life by jump kicking his dad. I think that would be good. Oh mercy, mercy me! This podcast ain't what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> and the nominees continue with Mister John Perich. What up? What up? What up? So when you first asked. Uh, you know, who would you play in order to guarantee an Oscar nomination? I thought you meant, you know, what what type 
of character would you play to guarantee an Oscar nomination? So, of course, I went with the the obvious home run answer, a retarded World War II nurse who's addicted to morphine. Don, 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 <laughs> you never go full retard. Oh. Did you learn anything from Tropic Thunder? <laughs> oh, right. No, no, no. You only you only go half retard. Uh, but, oh, okay, okay, okay. That's cool. but uh, if we're if we're talking about real life historical figures, my my legit answer would be uh, former or not former. He's they're all dead now. Uh, Los Alamos physicist and Caltech professor and Nobel Prize winner uh, Richard Feynman. Oh, nice. Who's you know who if you've read his autobiography led actually a fairly interesting life in and of its own merits without having to fictionalize much. So. You know, he worked on the Los Alamos uh, project, the Manhattan Project, which developed the atomic bomb. He was apparently something of a ladies' man. He's a Nobel Prize winner. He's famous for his ability to popularize and explain these incredibly dense concepts of uh, quantum physics. And, you know, he's a he's an artist. He was an amateur safe cracker. He played the drums. He, you know, all sorts of interesting things happened to him and about him. And I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been a biopic made of him yet or that there's not one in the works. So Hollywood, I know Topher Grace needs the work. So, <laughs> so get out there and give that man a job. Oh, surely you're joking, Mr. Parrish. Oh, ah. uh, all right. I'm I'm last. Um, porn star. <laughs> porn like star. A, a regular and yeah, one. yeah, a regular one. And here's why: it's it's a way of doing precious, uh, but being white, and uh, also being marginally less depressing, right? Because you can <laughs> you can do the drug addiction, you know, you can do the the like the childhood abuse, but there's porn in it, you know, and people are going to come for that. So it's going to be it's going to be one of these sort of art house uh, popular crossover movies, you know. Wait it's, a sec, that that was going to be the comeback picture for Lindsay Lohan. She was going to do the the biopic of I think Linda Lovelace or some other famous porn star, and then she apparently grew so drugged out and unreliable that the studio was like, no, no, we want a different actress to play a drugged-out porn star than you, Ms. Lowen. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> that, that train has sailed. No, I think that's... Yeah, exactly. That train... Yeah, that train did sail. When... when um when Lindsay Lohan entered the uh, the Betty Ford Center, I think recently for this uh, latest stint in inpatient um, inpatient drug treatment, she uh, yeah she lost her job. I forget what that project was called. Oh, I'm going to um, uh, Inferno. Inferno, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and apparently, like Gawker or someone obtained like the script, and and there were some very terrible graphic lines, like. You know, oh yes, choke me with your bleep, and uh, you know, and th- and things like this that we were all sort of imagining Lindsay Lohan saying. Um, well, what can I be her? Uh, can I be the uh, the boyfriend who was abusive to her, and you know, put put Linda Borman, uh, whose stage name was Linda Lovelace, uh, through through that hell? Can I play? Can I play oh. that guy? Oh, Matt, you never have to ask permission to be abusive. That's the beauty of it. Shut up! Oh, 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 oh dear. Yeah, that was, that, was a little, oh. that was a little darker than I meant. I'm when I want you to, when I want you to talk on the podcast, I'll tell you what to say, woman. No, uh, podcaster, parrot. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to dearest, less dangerous territory. Quick, please. <laughs> I want to introduce you to some of my friends. You make them very happy with your analysis of pop culture, or else they'll be hell to pay at home. <laughs> that that wasn't uh, what I asked. <laughs> less, less, less dangerous. Go on. All right, Here, the nominees for the eighty third uh, <laughs> Academy Awards. Um, let's just let's just uh, let's go down the list. Uh, well, before we go down the list, actually, maybe we should. Uh, to say specifically why we jumped at the uh, best actor uh, category, and I think this came from the because this podcast is a sausage fest. Uh, that's one reason. The other reason being that in our pre-show discussion, we talked about the movies we'd seen recently. I'd finally gotten around to seeing you know some of these prestige picks out there um, this past weekend. Uh, the King's Speech, obviously, Colin Firth nominated there for playing the king, and uh, the um, the fighter. Which Christian Bale, not nominated for Best Actor, but Best Supporting Actor for his role as a, a crackhead, uh, crackhead former boxer. A, uh, also a historical character. Not quite historical in the same sense as the king. Although, in a way, a crackhead is a, <laughs> is a king. 
And by in a way, I mean not at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but what, the, what my thought coming out of seeing um, the fighter was that it's as if Christian Bale uh, looked up in the actor's handbook of how to win an Oscar by portraying a uh, how to win an Oscar, basically, which is to portray a character that's you know drugged out. Uh, you know, historical character down on his luck, you know, redeems himself, lose a lot of weight, gain it back, you know, basically go jump through all these hoops and do an extreme performance in order to, to uh, catch the eye of the Academy. I'm, I'm with you. I'm totally with you, Mark, except that Christian Bale has done this for almost every role he's ever done. <laughs> right. So it's it's hard to it, you're absolutely right that this is right out of the playbook, but it's hard to fault him for it, considering that this is his usual M.O. Right. Um, the machinist. He got really, really Hello? thin. Uh, uh, Dark Knight. He bulks up. Um, does does Bale have an acting mode other than gain weight or lose weight? <laughs> I don't know. He's um, talk gravelly. <laughs> yeah. This is John Connor. You can hear me. You are the resistance. I, or my <laughs> wait. Are we are we making fun of are we making fun of Christian Bale? Because I think he's a really good actor. Oh, he's I'm making, awesome. oh I, we're not making fun of Christian. Bale. I'm making fun of Terminator Salvation. Let me be clear. <laughs> newsies. I, I mean, that guy. He makes newsies. I'm just saying. He is the he is one of the better actors in Equilibrium. Tate <laughs> <laughs> Diggs, really, and Sean Bean. <laughs> I don't know, man. Tate Diggs kind of acts him off the screen every scene there. In uh, he uses Gunkata to get him off the screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mark, I I, uh, I see here in my notes on my blue card that I'm given by the uh, associate producer who does the pre-interviews and uh, gives them to me to host the show. I see here on my blue card uh, that you saw the fighter at a drive-in movie theater. How'd oh. that happen? Well, let me tell you, this is a bit of a tangent from our ostensible topic. Oh, well, then we can't do it on this podcast. Well, clearly. <laughs> um, we'll get back there uh, soon. I promise, listeners. I promise we always do. Or do we? Um, anyway, <laughs> so I saw the fight and drive in. I was in uh, Arizona this, this weekend and uh, outside of my, um, I was about to say native New York City, but my home, New York City. Um, and in, unlike in New York City and Arizona, there's plenty of space, you know, because it's a freaking desert. So they can, you know, have a drive in movie theater where a bunch of cars drive in uh, and, and, and see movies. And um, the experience was uh, more novel than I would say sort of like a quality cinema experience. Um, well, first of all, let me ask the panel here. How, who has been to a drive-in, say, within the last 10 years or ever in your never. life? Never. Oh, I never have. Yeah. John? Uh, no. Oh, wow. So I'm the only person on this four-panel podcast of uh, – we're all you know, you know, males around the age of 30 years old. I'm the only one who has seen a drive-in movie, and it happened a few days ago. Yeah. I wow. don't even have a car. So tell, I mean, tell us about it. <laughs> sure. Okay, so here's how this works. First of all, it's dirt cheap. It was six fifty for a double fe- per person for a double feature. Um, we only saw the fighter, but we, if we wanted to, we could have seen. I think the Green Hornet before that. But who wants to see that crap? Did you did you sneak people in in the trunk so that you could get like extra people into the drive-in? Um, no, I mean I do have that experience from you know taking hostages and stuffing them in my trunk, but no, Matt, <laughs> I did not do that. Um, I guess suppose he could, but that uh, that's six fifty. Come on. Um, anyway, so just a, just a, a, a part of the experience is that. Um, well, it's, it's, it's not great cinema quality because the screen is kind of out of focus a little bit. At least this is how it was, you know, when, when I saw it. And I suppose that's a function of, uh, you know, having to project on such a huge screen and maybe like the, you know, the distance, the atmosphere. I have no idea. But anyway, the screen is a little bit blurry. The sound comes in on FM radio. You tune your radio to, uh, you know, the particular frequency they tell you. And obviously, you know, it's kind of it's just localized to that area. Um, otherwise, I guess people from all over the greater Phoenix area could tune into the soundtrack to the fighter. And listen to Christian Bale's <laughs> crazy Boston accent. Um, but anyway, so that was that. And the sound quality of that was a little bit of static in there. This, it was just kind of the sound quality was just kind of okay. The whole thing was just novel, right? Um, you wouldn't sort of you know choose that as your regular movie going option if you're interested in like the best sound and picture quality. That being said, it provides interesting opportunities. I guess you know the teenagers are there and make out, but um, you know if you wanted to, you could. Um, well, the, the thing that come, came to my mind is if you wanted to, you could tweet through this whole movie. Which you obviously can't do at a movie theater. Yeah. <laughs> just like you know, offer your witty running commentary to the whole thing. Um, what, which, what do you mean? You, what do you mean you can't have your cell phone out in a movie theater? What, which movie theater have you been to in this country where that's forbidden? Please tell me where that is. <laughs> Oddly enough, the ones in New York City. 
<laughs> as opposed to the wilderness. New York of- City. <laughs> Sorry, exactly. I just laughed at myself because of a ten-year-old picante sauce commercial. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody shoot me with a trank gun. This is sad. <laughs> anyway, continue. Anyway, I thought the, the experience was interesting, and I guess the overthinking angle is. Um, sort of the, the private versus public way of, of watching movies. Basically, when you go to the drive-in, it's the equivalent, in terms of the private sphere, it's the equivalent of popping a DVD. Uh, it's almost the equivalent of popping a DVD into your DVD player at home and sitting on your couch and watching it. Because when you're on your couch, you can make out, you can tweet, you can do whatever the hell you want, pretty much, almost anything you want. Um, and, and almost the same thing applies you know, when you're sitting in, in your car, the relative privacy of your car, uh, at the drive-in. Um, whereas, you know, nowadays when we go to the theater, obviously, you know, it's a group experience. The audiences are reacting together, uh, you know, laughing at the jokes together, go clapping at, at, at particular lines, um, that sort of thing. So it was just, it, it, to me, it was an interesting combination of those, uh, of, of those two things where I'm, you know, I'm so used to going to the movies and being part of an audience as a collective experience and then coming to the drive-in and it being more of a private experience. It sounds like the worst of both worlds in a lot of ways. Uh, in what way? Well, in the in the sense that you get all the you get all the downsides of of um, of uh, kind of seeing a movie in a little bubble of your living room or your car, but all the downsides also of of like I I don't know it's like having to go to a place and pay money. Uh, yeah, and also kind of the kind of the lack of control over the environment, you know, you know, well, there I mean? is a little like bit of interesting thing about the, the control of the environment is well, one thing is the volume knob, right? The annoying commercials <laughs> at the beginning, turn it down, you know, the previews, you know, the, ooh, this is interesting. I'll turn this one up a little bit here. Um, and then obviously during the movie, you know, like I think it's a common complaint, uh, Matt, you've even complained about this. You go to the theater, the subwoofers are jacked up so high, especially on these blockbusters, the explosions and things like it's going to rattle your Yeah, I was, I was actually, I was traumatized. I was a victim of the enhanced theater experience at the AMC <laughs> chain uh, near me, which apparently means like turn it up so loud that it's teeth rattlingly, uh, uh, you know, powerful, the sound waves. Yeah, so obviously you can avoid that when you're at the drive-in. But I also I made a mistake. It wasn't like I saw Sense and Sensibility with the enhanced theater experience. <laughs> <laughs> I saw uh, The Expendables with the enhanced theater experience. And your like, first mistake was seeing The Expendables. Oh, I th- oh come on! That was a that was a brilliant film. I actually think it's a it's a terrible oversight that the Academy has not recognized it with <laughs> with even one nomination, not even for sound effects editing, because I like. <laughs> I swear, I pooped my pants. Whatever that frequency is that makes you poop your pants, is that an urban legend? Someone go on Snopes really quickly and look up the brown noise. The brown noise. Yeah, exactly. On Snopes, Um, whatever it is, they you know they succeeded. It was it was pants soilingly terrifying. The sound design or the sound effects editing of that movie that that deserves an Oscar right there. Uh, the, the, you're Matt. You're part of the academy. You make that happen. Uh, I'm, I'm a part of the Screen Actors Guild. So we got um. Oh, oh, so hey, here. actually uh, speaking of so, uh, one last thing about the uh, about the sort of the experience of watching a movie at a drive-in, and particularly with this, regards to the technical issue I had mentioned earlier with the screen being a little bit out of focus, is I realized that I was I felt like I was missing out on a lot of what was supposed to be communicated by the actors because I couldn't see precisely what was going on with their eyes. It was a really good reminder of a couple of things. One of just you know, sort of the importance of eyes in human communication and communicating emotion, yeah. as well as the, diff- the sort of the nuanced part of acting and how important that is. And we kind of don't appreciate that until that's been taken away from us. Well, it's not it even. Like, it was like, what? Well, what is behind Christian Bale's coke-addled, uh, coke-addled mind there? You know, is he giving me the blank stare of being coke-addled, or is he giving me the piercing glaze of someone who's being redeemed from his coke-addledness? I see. Yeah, you, me, you crack-addledness. You, crack-addledness. Yeah, you couldn't really track the the crack-addled story uh, <laughs> because of the eyes. It's actually I. I'd actually posit it's less a uh, it's less an acting thing and more a visual storytelling thing generally. Like so much of uh, how movies are cut together has to do with where where the actors are looking. Um, and in you know in classical kind of shot counter shot editing, there's this this thing called an eye line match, which is that like um, the 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 two characters' eyes appear to be looking at each other across the screen. Um, mm. 
you know, and it has something to do with like the with, with what's called the 180 degree rule, which is that which is to say you imagine a an, uh, a line between the characters, and the camera always stays on one side of that line. Um, uh, you know, so that Christian Bale is always on the left, and Mark Wahlberg is always on the right. Because if the if the camera flipped around 180 degrees, Mark Wahlberg would be on the right, and that would be like, or Mark Wahlberg would be on the left, and that would be like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get you couldn't do that. So that like um, an actor's eyes. Uh, tells you where to look. It's an it's an indication where you ought to look and what parts of the screen, what visual information is important uh, in in a particular shot. And so missing that, it I guess it kind of all becomes kind of gibberish, right? Oh, but it's like totally totally gibberish. It's just like you feel like you're missing. I guess complete like gibberish. Okay, fine. <laughs> I'm going to go back to making out at my imaginary drive into my mind. Well, okay, so speaking of suboptimal viewing experiences, um, <laughs> the, uh, it, it's funny. I vote in the SAG Awards, and the, the, um, the thing about SAG is that compared with all the other guilds, there are more people in it. There are, I think, 100,000 people in SAG. And so you don't want to distribute – if you're doing a, an awards campaign, you don't want to distribute – um, screening DVDs to 100,000 people. It's much easier to do it to the you know small number of thousands that's in uh, uh, in the Academy, right? Or the Directors Guild, or the Writers Guild, or the Producers Guild, or you know what have you. Any of the other um, so, uh, the Thieves Guild, yeah, yeah. The the, the teams, the Teamsters, <laughs> you know, for for uh, best driving on a motion picture. Um, so right. So what they've done this year is that there was a like a special private iTunes site for SAG members where you could download the the movies onto your Apple TV, which I did, or onto like a computer or an iPad. And so there were people who were screening these screening the movies on uh, on an iPad. And I so I was talking with with a friend of mine who works in the business and who who thought this was the most. I thought it was awesome, frankly, uh, but who thought it was the most terrible thing in the world because these these films that ought to have you know cinematic sweep that ought to be experienced on the full you know 30 foot high screen are being now kind of seen on the the uh the 10 inch ipad and if they're if they're letterboxed it's you know the movie could be like only six inches high so that uh and and what works at that size is a lot of close-ups it's a lot more like television than it is like um Mm. Like cinema, like Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, exactly. Like, or, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, have you, have you tried to look at a landscape, a picture of a landscape on a tiny screen? It's it's um, it's almost impossible. Uh, you know, I don't That's, know. Oh, by the way, as a as a as a side note, we ought to like pay someone twenty bucks to watch the Lawrence of Arabia on an iPhone <laughs> and tell <laughs> their experience is like. Yeah, well, tell I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about My name is Stevo, and this is Lawrence of Arabia on an iPhone. I would imagine that distributing uh, Oscar screeners via an iTunes store probably also makes it a lot easier to control for piracy, which I know is a concern with DVD screeners going out early. <laughs> they can get these, these films that are almost immediately available online. People are like, oh, I wonder who it was that, you know, that, that squealed. Well, yeah, it's. Um... Right, because they're done as rentals, so the the file is only good for thirty days, and then it's only good for twenty four hours once you hit play, and then you have to like be logged into the iTunes store in order to do it, and they they've already I guess solved that problem of you don't hear of a lot of piracy coming from the iTunes store, but there's a um, there's an article on waxy dot org. Uh, that's about um, pirating the the 2011 Oscars, and this um, Andy Bio, who's the who does that website, is is the guy behind um, these annual lists of like uh, how many um, how many Oscar movies have been pirated. So I think it's something like it's less than a third uh, of Oscar movies that are available as high quality, which is to say, not camera or telesync. Um, uh, uh, or it's about a third, yeah, that have leaked um, before before the Oscars. Um, oh, here we go. Uh, continuing the trend from the last couple of years, fewer screeners are linking, leaking online by nomination day than ever. Last year, at this time, only 41% of screeners had linked online, leaked online. That is to say, uh, 41% of the... The films nominated mm-hmm. this year. That number drops again slightly to thirty-eight percent. 
Oh, is that a percent? Sorry, is that a percentage of the films on the list or of the copies? No, not of the copies. Uh, uh, of the yeah. films, of the films on the list. Okay. There, yeah, well, the, uh, yeah. Um, but if you include uh, retail DVD releases along with screeners, sixty-six percent, two-thirds of this year's nominated films have already leaked online in high quality. Uh, which is I to say, know, I don't know. Another. Don't know which, the, oh, sorry. I don't know if that's a meaningful statistic because have the same number of films been nominated across all categories? Because, you know, I mean, you get certain pictures like Inception or Avatar a couple of years ago that really dominate in a lot of different categories. So if one of them leaks, then obviously that's going to be a leak that's going to, you know, affect that that's going to be a larger percentage of Oscar nominated films that have been leaked than in prior years. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a weighted average. I think. Oh, are you saying that like there ought to be some metric for taking into account the number of nominations that film ha- the films have? Yeah, because if it was just a straight percentage. Then maybe if there were only a few quality films that were dominating a lot of different awards, then you know more than just those few films being leaked would raise the percentage. I, I I'm just saying I don't know what this man's metrics are. I want to see the data. I want to see the journal citations. I, Show I wanna, me the receipts. Show me the receipts. I want to talk with his lab ex, the lab assistants. It's you know, I, I question, I question the scientific method. Um, here are a couple miscellaneous, a little bit of miscellaneous tidbits from the uh, from the article. This year, three films were leaked online within a day of their theatrical release: Iron Man Two, Alice in Wonderland, and uh, the this year's Harry Potter movie. Um, the Rabbit Hole screener. That's the uh, the adaptation of the play um, Rabbit Hole with uh, Aaron Eckhart and Nicole Kidman, um, uh, written and I think the movie was directed right by David Lindsay Abair. Um, uh, da, 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 Rabbit Hole screener was leaked online uh, eight days before its theatrical release, uh, while Winter's Bone was the slowest to leak online at uh, 125 days after its. Um, theatrical release. More Oscar-nominated films have been released on uh, December 25th than any other day, but the median date is uh, October 20th. Oh, that's some statistical analysis I should have done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway. How much do you think is, is, of this is demand side? Like, like, because it might be, it sounds like a, it's like, oh, it's a victory if Oscar-nominated films are not leaked, but maybe it means that nobody wants to watch them. Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't think that, I mean, it's, Avatar is very heavily pirated. Inception is very heavily pirated. You know, they're up at the top of the charts in terms of piracy, right? Um, but they're still making a, a money, and their release is still a net positive for everybody. So, um, you know, it's sort of, it's interesting to think. Uh, and the, the relationship between piracy and kind of like legitimate release, think about it less in terms in terms of a security issue and more in terms of a sort of economic incentives issue, right? Like, um, like the more... Um, commercials you have in the front of DVDs, the more of an incentive you have for people to pirate them, like the sort of more protections, the more difficult you make it to access them online, the more incentive you have to make them pirated. And then the worse the, uh, the movies are, the less incentive there is to pirate them. Or not the worse, the less people want to watch them. So the movies I would expect to see pirated a lot are movies where like, people really want to watch them, but the companies aren't providing a, a cheap enough and easy enough and sort of a prepackaged enough uh, way of doing it to compete with piracy. Now, of course, this sort of like speaks against a certain, I don't know whether legal positivism is the right term, but it's like this idea, well, because this thing is wrong, it must be prohibited and stopped 100%, and we need to like crack down on all their stuff. But the more interesting question, at least in terms of the relative numbers and the relative movements of these things, is, you know, what about the economic factors? Like, what about the market factors, right? How are these things driving piracy? Because it's, it's not like the people doing BitTorrent are like, you know, there's going to, oh, maybe we'll do Winter's Bone today. How good is it, right? You know, it's like, um, these things, there's lots and lots of people involved in these things. Well, I, I just, I just a little, just a little bit of very incidental research. So, as of right this second, on the PirateBay.org, there are five thousand five hundred plus people seeding the fighter, five hundred plus people seeding the town, and two hundred and ten people seeding Furry Vengeance, starring uh, starring Brendan Fraser. 
<laughs> now, this is of course not endorsing such things because we would not want to do we would not endorse want to endorse illegal activity. But oh, no, of course not. But you have to understand. You have to like investigate what's going on because just being ignorant of how the business is working it doesn't seem to really be good for anybody either. So, furry vengeance is doing well. Is that the moral of the story? Furry <laughs> 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 vengeance. I well, I mean, we don't know what the distribution is. So, you know, two hundred and seventeen seaters for furry vengeance versus. 500 plus for the town might be, you know, a tremendous drop off in, in quality. It might be several standard deviations outside the, the peak of the curve. But it's, it, I mean, it, it seems to lend some credence to the fact that the less demanded movies are less demanded, which now that I say it out loud sounds kind of obvious. So, hey, someone cut me off. Well, yeah, also, but, but I mean, other people might say that the more secure movies are the ones that are less downloaded, but that doesn't necessarily seem to play off. Like it seems to be like the more that they want them, the more likely they are to be out there. Well, right. on a on a long enough timeline, no no movie is infinitely secure. I mean, at some point, it has to be translated into a medium that human eyes can interpret, and at that point, it can be pirated. So it's just a question of cost of cost effectiveness. Like, is there enough encryption on it or weird things to make it? to make it unpiratable, and B, are the distribution networks in place that, you know, the most successful pirate can pass it on to the rest of the world. Right, and the problem of, the problem of DVD and Blu-ray uh, encryption has been solved, so it's trivially easy now to pirate anything once it comes to, uh, to DVD and Blu-ray. So right. at that and, uh, point... The new, you know. the new front stuff, the UBB stuff happening in Canada this week... Is that this week or is that this month? Uh, I don't know exactly when it went into effect. But that's the new front in this war, right, is like the vertical integration between the people owning the pipelines, so to speak, the series of tubes. Like the, the sort of infrastructure ownership, uh, controlling pro- content pricing as a way of kind of controlling the flow of information and using sort of monopolistic practices to try to stop this sort of stuff from happening. And, it, and more also to drive things like Netflix out of business, right? Like that's the strategy. And like so do you guys know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. How? Oh, so in Canada uh, – uh, I don't know if it's all of Canada or parts of Canada. I can look this up. But I've heard about this, that, that the uh, major telecommunications companies uh, – so in Canada, of course, if, you, if you're – the companies that own the broadband infrastructure, right, uh, they, the ISPs use it, right, to, to, to deliver the Internet to people. Um, but if, because it is sort of a, a major public utility, it's regulated by the government. And so the Canadian gun is a regulatory agency, and this Canada has kind of like a bit of a, of a British style of telecommunications regulation, right? Like they have their own broadcasting companies that that do these sorts of things. Um, and I believe that they recently instituted uh, uh, usage-based pricing with, with some pretty draconianly low uh, like levels, right? Above which, like you can trans- transmit however many gigabytes, like 25 gigabytes or whatever, uh, in a month, and then above that they charge you for it. Right. And uh, and this has an effect of like making certain kinds of online communications start to look really prohibitively expensive, which are conveniently forms of online communication that are in competition with the companies that own and are in cooperation with the Broadway and delivery companies. So, like, you know, it's really tough to watch Netflix in a in a model where usage is priced, especially if right. the company that owns the infrastructure that controls the the pricing also has its own competitor to to netflix or what have you that it can like give preferable pricing to and give preferable treatment to right and uh, the same thing with um phone calls right so it's a lot hard to skype like this very podcast could be harder to make but they're really talking about video conferencing and video phone calls so you know um if you're or the example i heard is if you're in sort of the canadian military and you're out in the boonies up north and you want to try to call your your family and you and you can't afford to use the phone the phone company which owns the broadband stuff can charge you an arm and a leg for using the video service in order to force you back into the medium that they control right uh, and this is sort of the way that the government and the companies are working together to try to um i don't want to say hold back progress because that institutes a sort of inevitability that may not be the case right we don't know how it's going to play out but to try to steer uh, the usage of this infrastructure in the direction of the interest of specific companies. And I think that this is where you're going to see big impact. And this is a big attempt to put an impact on piracy, right? Because BitTorrent is pretty um, intensive in its usage of networks. Right? I mean, it's, not, it's, it's hard to pin down the individual people who are using it. Um, and, of course, because there is at least some sort of token respect, it's hard to prosecute them. Um, so, but it is not as hard... Uh, if you let them to let the telecommunications companies sort of start charging people for doing a lot of downloads, right? Um, and, and that's when when you start using the power of the purse strings and changing the prices. 
Now, this is, of course, very anti-free market, right? You would expect if people are really free market that they would be against these sorts of regulations. Of course, in the American political landscape, it works quite the opposite. The people against the regulations, uh, the people who are in favor of limiting Internet traffic tend to espouse free market principles because of you know, conflicts of interest and, and disingenuity, disingenuity. But, uh, you know, it, I don't know. It's a very complicated issue, uh, but it'll be interesting to see what happens because this, this isn't going away. Like, this consolidation and, and control, uh, like, I guess I would say that, like, infrastructure control has been underpriced. And so people are willing to put up some money now to take control of it through using government and, and company infrastructure. Does that all make sense? It's a little bit of a disorganized rant, but it kind of tries to touch it in all the different places. Where it, it does, is. but it's, I mean, it seems like it would be so manifestly a disaster when, if something like that got, got put in place here. I think we're already at a, at a real competitive disadvantage uh, when you consider the, the um, uh, Internet as a, a fantastic engine for economic growth, all the more so because it's, it's – um, universally accessible uh you know because you can do a netflix yeah you know what i mean yeah. like that's you can create a well, lot of stop us from it doesn't stop us from torpedoing our public school system <laughs> like, <laughs> like, there's all sorts of things that the cooperation between business and government will do to destroy the country like, well sure like, I, I, that. we don't need broadband we've got telephones yeah like, we don't need schools like you know we've got we've got Guns in colleges, you know, like it's nonsense. We don't. Of course, well, we need. Uh, the, uh, of course, we need free and available broadband, just like we need free and available education. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the, that, that the country is going to understand that that's in its interest. Yeah, we don't have a. support that. Yeah, Pete, I hate to, so, I hate to, to, to crap on your your point here, but we don't even have colleges anymore in a, yeah. in, in a lot of places. Like we, uh, sure the new governor Where of California, are we getting all these live college girls. Are they coming from other countries? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so spoiled. On the, on the internet. Don't click on that, Pete. Those, those sites are expensive. They use a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's why the money is coming out of my account after using them. But okay. <laughs> no, no, no. No such things. I, I'm pure as the driven snow. How pure activities. is the driven snow, though, Pete? Like, by the time the snow gets driven, isn't it, isn't it pretty impure, right? Like, uh, that is to say, doesn't a plow uh, impart impurities to the snow when it drives it? <laughs> well, that's not, what, that's not what driven means. But, uh, I mean, one of the things I have noticed, because it snowed a lot this summer, is that you can see where all the dogs pee all the time because it doesn't run this, off. This winter, you mean? Uh, this, this, it's, oh, it's, I'm sorry. I'm in Australia. Where it's, <laughs> <laughs> where it's summer, it's also snowing. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. You're what right. is? Uh, sorry, then, then uh, correct me, Pete. What what does driven mean mean in reference to snow? I think it means the wind, right? Oh, yeah, driven, uh, driven by the wind. Huh. Speaking, of, speaking of driven snow, did anyone see tr- uh, Oscar nominated True Grit? Or did we cover that in the podcast already? No, have no, not I seen saw it. it. What do you mean? What does that have to do with the driven snow? Because there's. Is- because there's snow in True Grit. <laughs> Thanks for trying. All right, I'm, we're trying, I'm trying to I'm trying to wrestle this this ferocious bear cat back on topic, if if at all possible. I'm like hearing the whirring of your Segway engine, like straining. <laughs> <ramp up laughs> yeah, I love True Grit. I thought True Grit was awesome. I thought True Grit was great. Now I've heard it said that True Grit is among the movies, and I'm playing devil's advocate for myself here, that it's not really that great, but because movies for adults that are actually decent are so rare, it gets disproportionately phrased. Um, but I liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. Uh, I, I had not heard that. I, I suppose, I mean, in, in terms of what we think of and as Oscar-caliber films, it's not, it's not transcendent. I mean, it's not this epic story that sweeps across generations it's not groundbreaking in cinematography. It is, in fact, a remake of a of a film which won someone else an Oscar, namely John Wayne in, in 1969, I think it was. Yeah, 1969. But it it's a phenomenally well-made film. It's it's more than just a remake of the original. It's a it takes a different tack on the the most obvious point, and several critics have said this already, is that the Coen Brothers' True Grit is more the 14-year-old girl's story, the, uh, the Hallie Steinfeld character. Uh, Maddie, Maddie Ross is her name. Whereas the, the 1969 True Grit is a John Wayne story that has a, has a teenage girl as a framing device. So who does John Wayne play in the, in the older one? Is he Rooster? Or is yes. he the Texas Ranger? Okay, cool, cool. Yes, he is, he, is, uh, he is Jeff Bridges' character in the original. He's... In some ways, he's more drunk. In some ways, he's less drunk. Uh, 
<laughs> if, if that's if that's a meaningful distinction. He's more comically drunk in ways. The time there is a there is a scene in the original film that's also from the novel in which the the Maddie Ross character is having dinner with with Rooster Cogburn and Rooster Cogburn spots a rat in the back of the the Chinese store where he lives and he pulls his gun out and attempts to serve an arrest warrant on the rat and the rat obviously doesn't comply so he takes a few pot shots at it. So that's you know that's more comical drunk. Whereas the Coen Brothers version with Jeff Bridges, Jeff Bridges is at times comic, but he's clearly also a little more of a sort of dangerous, dissipated drunk. He's a he's an unpleasant man. Whereas John Wayne just you know fell out of his saddle sometimes and groused when he had to get up too early, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, that would be interesting uh, to do some sort of case study to get like a guy actually that drunk and see how he behaves. And whether he's more like John Wayne or, or like, like Jeff Bridges. First, first, let's get someone drunk. Second, let's give them a gun. Third, let's put them on a horse and uh, and let's see what happens. Let's just let's just just roll with it. Just 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 use it all. It's all good footage. I think the answer, John, is America. <laughs> Man, someone... this, this this old True Grit has Robert Duvall and Dennis Hopper in it. Like back yeah. to back. That's wild. Well, that looks intense. Uh, this is this is before Dennis Hopper was at all famous, but he was a he was a young he was a young kid. He was the kid who got he was the kid who got shot in the in the raid on that little cottage that, that we see in the original True Grit. And Dennis Hopper was the role played by uh, Barry Pepper in in this version. He was the the mastermind of the criminal gang. Gotcha. 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 Well, that's interesting. You guys haven't cool. seen. Cool. No, I did. Like, I like this. Sorry, I was just going to throw away a joke and say I haven't seen True Grit, but I'm looking forward to the sequel, True Grits, about um, a delicious southern <laughs> corn-based breakfast food. <laughs> Truer, grittier. Too true, too gritty. <laughs> Starring Jeff Bridges in Ludacris as they ride horses. And then there's like True true in the grittiest Tokyo Drift. Tokyo Grit? Tokyo, Tokyo Grit. <laughs> Like uh, with Bow Wow and Chuck Norris, as they uh, ride horses around the Japanese underground. <laughs> the horses are burning, like brushing their legs. See, see, one thing one thing that's always surprised me, and this is, and uh, there are probably several examples which will prove me wrong, but given that the the late nineteenth century was both the heyday for kung fu in uh, Hong Kong and mainland China. And, you know, the Wild West in American mythology, I'm surprised there aren't more films that blend the two. I mean, we had the, the Jackie Chan Shanghai Noon series, and we had uh, The Way of the Warrior, I think it was yep. called, that had, although I think he was technically a samurai, not a not a kung fu master. Oh, okay. but, I'm, but I'm surprised, just given the, the tremendous influx of, of Chinese immigration in the 19th century to America, but there haven't been more stories taking advantage of that. Like, oh, you know, some poor Kung Fu master who moves to America. Well, okay, obviously there's the, the TV series Kung Fu, but there was a white guy in that, David Carradine. He was totally not Chinese. So <laughs> come on, Hollywood, get on it. it it's interesting how, you know, because there is that time where you have a lot of uh, white guys playing uh, Asians and playing Middle Easterners and stuff. Uh, against the backdrop of all of the Egyptian stuff that was happening this week, I kept, kept thinking about John Rice Davies in uh, the Indiana Jones movies as the Egyptian uh, excavator. <laughs> ah, it's very dangerous. You go first. <laughs> and I was like, man, like, you know, back in the day, back in the day, Indiana Jones' best friend was an Egyptian Arab. Like, what happened to our culture that it became, it became so hostile? So, yeah, um, but speaking of uh, Egyptian Arabs in Indiana Jones... Oh, wait, 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 before we go there... How just about quickly. Winter's Bone? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> I, was, I was about to say, um, you know, kung fu movies set in western uh, in western context. Shanghai Noon, Jackie yeah, Chan, and Owen Wilson. Yeah, it was like I, right I, I, of my tongue. And we've we've been there. We've done that. I, I, re- I referenced that one. Yeah, but all, but speaking of, well, one last thing about kung fu movies because I just saw. I, again, I, I mentioned. Did I mention Itman on this podcast or was it in the pre podcast? Yeah, I mentioned it. I mentioned Itman. I was watching. That today, and like I said, it's set in China in 1935-ish or so, just before the Japanese invasion and and during. And one of the interesting things about this movie is it plays up a little more of how sort of undesirable 
kung fu masters are, especially in the early to, to mid 20th century. Because if you watch a lot of kung fu films, you get the impression that, oh, kung fu masters, they're inherently respected everywhere they go because the movie is all about kung fu. And you see these guys who are really good at kung fu and everyone sort of bows and acknowledges them. So you figure, oh, they get a lot of social respect. But the one thing that this movie makes clear is that, you know, kung fu masters get in fights all the time. And <laughs> if, if you're a cop trying to keep peace in a small town, you might not want a neighborhood full of people who get in fights all the time. And the analogy that sprung to mind for me is that, you know, if you were a dad and your daughter came home and said, I'm dating a UFC fighter, like, how would you how would you react to that and be like, well, is he is he good? Does he does he not use drugs? Does he have does, a college degree? <laughs> right. Are his tattoos offensive? Are they are they well concealed? I'd be like, uh, is he a striker or a grappler? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no daughter of mine's going to date a striker. Got to know how to their way around the mat. When you're in the octagon. <laughs> <laughs> Once Dana White's got that mic in your face, you've got to you've got to yeah. be able to handle yourself with that that college educated. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's all yeah. I have about kung fu. So if we want to move on to other Oscar nominated movies, <laughs> well, I'm with, surprised. With less clumsy I'm surprised by looking at this ten, this list of ten nominees for Best Picture. It can't help but feel a little bit padded out, right? Like, does the kids? What, what do you mean by right? padded out? Like, is the kids are all right really deserve to be nominated for Best Picture? I mean, I didn't see it, but the Annette Benning movie, aren't they like, they're lesbians and they have a family? It's about lesbians, Pete. Don't be so heteronormative. Of course it deserves <laughs> to be nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> it deserves the same Academy Award nominations as any of the other films. Well, sure, if it were the same movie. If they made a lesbian version of 127 Hours, I think it would have been awesome. No, I don't know. If that <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh no, I'm stuck in this crevasse in the desert, and I'm a lesbian. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to stop at stop is stuck in this crevasse. Oh, oh, oh! I mean, I don't oh. know. If I saw, I saw the kids are all right, and it yeah. was a it was a well done, well made movie. It was, it was good in all accounts. Um, but going back to John, what you were saying earlier about this having this transcendent quality about it um i mean i guess you could say maybe it's transcendent and that it's depicting a lesbian couple um sort of matter of factly i like the i like the i like the lesbian to mine the lesbian version of inception which was called insemination you've got to go deeper (laughs) 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 yeah i don't know we we definitely don't want to watch the lesbian version of toy story (laughs) three that's for sure Uh, I mean, this is really offensive what we're doing right now. We should really stop. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if we're talking about we totally deserve the, the hate mail that you're going talk, to send. If, if we're talking about padding out the list for best picture nominations, I'll I'll put this out there. Black Swan, Natalie Portman definitely deserves a a best uh, female actor. I, I don't like the term actress. A best uh, female actor nomination. I don't think Black Swan deserves a best picture nomination. I I think the movie was kind of cheesy and a little over the top in some ways and in natalie portman's case that works but as an overall movie i don't know that does and i know we had the black swan podcast which i wasn't on so you guys might have covered some of this in detail but i want to put that out there yeah it was all over the place my my point about black swan that it was all over the place as far as tone is concerned like is this a is this a scary movie is this a funny movie is this a you know is this a campy movie like it's it, it was kind of unclear it, that's the problem I have with Black Swan is that it relies too much on craziness, right? And it, it sort of like releases the tension on craziness a little bit much. And that's something, especially as, a, as an improv, improviser, I have a pretty big issue with, which is that once you just sort of like dispense with any need at all for your characters in your movie to have a relationship with reality because they're crazy, then you can say whatever you want. And it's just, it's just for me, that takes away a lot of the uh, a lot of the sort of uh, contiguity of it, I guess, if that's even a word, like the sort of way that it holds together. Right, and and, and that, you mean that you mean really like. you mean coherence, right? Like it takes away a lot of coherence if you don't establish a if you don't establish a consistent set of rules and then abide by them. Uh, yeah. Not that they have to be one particular set of rules or another, but if you keep uh, if you keep kind of changing the game uh, mid yeah. move, yeah. then you're not um, uh, you're kind of playing in bad faith. Yeah, the, 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 well, yeah. Go ahead. 
the story becomes less about narrative and more about spectacle at that point. And in Aronofsky's defense, he's really good at spectacle. Like in the in the climax of the of the film, as Natalie Portman is coming home from visiting Winona Ryder in the hospital, and the craziness really starts to hit full throttle. There's some genuinely terrifying stuff that goes on there. I mean, I was I was beside myself. But in terms of narrative, it introduces questions that fall apart later on. Like, wait a second, if this happened, then how did and who was and where did et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, I watched it a second time and I was actually, I, uh, because my girlfriend hadn't seen it and she wanted to. And so I went back. Uh, I actually downloaded it on the special secret iTunes site and watched it on the, uh, watched it on the TV. And it actually was almost more at home on the TV than it was, uh, <laughs> in the movie theater because a lot of that stuff is, it uh, seems to me like the stock and trade of a, of a, um, of a show like Criminal Minds or something of a lot of this kind of crazy person procedural television that we have now that has these weird erotic overtones and that, you know, um, uh, so and, uh, sorry, this is neither here nor there. And I was able to track the story uh, as far as what is um, what is real and what is what is pretend or what is imagined, what is kind of craziness uh, uh, on a second viewing. I couldn't, of course, give an account of it now because it's not like, it, you know, it's not fresh on my mind. But, um, I, you know, for what it's worth, when I went back, I thought I thought it hung together. Uh, as a narrative, once you knew, once you understood what was what. Mm. Still, still, I thought it was totally all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I feel also like, I mean, I hate to say it, but like, I don't think that Black Swan is so successful at being a prestige picture that it's a better movie than some of the more mainstream pictures are at being mainstream pictures. Right? Like, Like, I can't really say with like total confidence that it's better than like, I don't know, like Harry Potter. Like, you know, it's, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's nice. But, like, if you consider the full discipline of filmmaking, like, it doesn't have that sort of tight uh, sense of, uh, I don't get that sense of grand achievement from it, right? Of, of, like, greatness from it when I watch it. I mean, I didn't think, I thought it was a sort of inferior wrestler in a lot of ways. Um, you know what I mean? Because it's just like, it just doesn't hang together as much. But whatever. I mean, I don't want to poop on it too much. I mean, it's a pretty good movie. Sure. Uh, so so we've been working on movies, but I want to sort of hear like what does rise to that level of transcendence and what does, you know, get that feeling of something that tightly, you know, really comes together in a grand way. Yeah. Like on this yeah, list yeah. of 10 movies that we have here's, here. Here's the one I really oh, like. the movies that are nominated for Best Picture. Which, or what's not, what's not on this list that should be. Well, I, what's not on the list that should be or what's on the list that belongs well, those, are, those are two very different, those are two very different questions. But I, I, I'm going to stick up for Winter's Bone here, like, uh, which I saw over the summer. And I thought was just an incredible movie. I mean, it does something that, that Black Swan uh, tries to do and, and doesn't quite manage to do. And it does something that, that Harry Potter does in the novels, but not really all that well in the movies because the movies for me have the quality of a forced march uh through the events of the plot and don't kind of don't ever sort of unfold and take advantage of the the you know the medium of you know visual storytelling to um to do some of the special things that that cinema can do that that novels can't do, uh, Winter's Bone uh, creates a world that is fully realized, um, really novel to uh, you know to films um, that that I've seen anyway, and certainly that I've seen recognized on this level, and that is uh, that is sort of really strikingly inhabited by by a bunch of actors, uh, some of whom you won't recognize, and some of whom you will recognize, but but will it will take you a second to recognize them because they're really doing a uh, they're really doing a good job of blending in to uh, to this world, mm-hmm. you know anyway. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I'm looking. You know what I've been thinking when I was looking at the list was like, you know, and I, I looked at a list of the top grossing movies of the year, right? And I was like, these these really don't look all that exciting. I mean, Jackass 3D is great, but like, you know, like Takers, you know. I mean, I guess The American was pretty good, right? Like the, the George Clooney movie, but like that's such an obvious also ran. Like the best George Clooney movie of the year could get nominated for Best Picture every year, and nobody would really care, right? Like because it, you know, it's some, it doesn't usually deserve to win, and it has that certain well, amount of what? seriousness. But was the American nominated for anything? I don't think so. I don't think it was nominated for anything anywhere. But I think it, it, I think it might be a better movie than Black Swan. Um, just, just kind of- American is like a pretty sophisticated love letter to like you know mid twentieth century Italian cinema that has like a lot going on and it's, it's pretty well acted and it's got a really cool tone and like it, it just there's it's a pretty smart film and I mean I think it might be more of what I look for in a Best Picture nominee than Black Swan is, which is like a hot mess, right? Um, <laughs> 
which I mean is great, and I love to see it. But I don't know if this is the academy, right? And like, I sort of expect them to if I if they're going to be making sort of arbitrary decisions, I want them to do it with a certain amount of gravitas for their arbitrariness. <laughs> yeah, the I don't, yeah. It's kind of odd that the American got completely snubbed. Apparently, That's, yeah, it's true, isn't it? That, and it was a good. It was a good performance. It was well written in the you know in the sense that the uh, the sequence of events was um, sort of interesting. And it was also like the movie. the The movie that I compared to is is a movie called uh, Le Samurai, right? With uh, Jean, uh, by um, Jean Pierre. Yes, Melville. with uh, with, Alain, with Alain Delon. 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 In it, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, wa- I watched that just uh, last this year, last year. Oh, really? Some year, sometime recently. But yeah, I, I, I saw it just for the first. Which time. Which has this sort of underworldy feel. It it also has the 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 quality that the American had in in um in some cases of being a, a black and white fi- a black and white film in color, or a, you know what I mean, a, a movie with kind of the color uh, sapped out of it, which which had something to do with the kind of the bleakness of the worldview of the central character. Um, <laughs> Anyway, well, the, uh, the the one the one thing I noted about pastoral this, and about, urban, but never mind. Right, the one thing I know about Le Samurai, the when I first watched it, was that it's a movie very obsessed with process. Like it, it, it devotes a lot of screen time and a lot of detail to the ways that things are done. Like when we see our protagonist, the assassin Jeff, or the hitman Jeff, go to you know jack a car to go take to this mob hit that he's doing you know we see him getting dressed we see him fetching this ring of keys out of out of the closet he goes down he he rifles into a car and he tries each key in turn in the ignition until he gets one that works etc and same thing with the cops when they're tracking him down like there's this obsession on the the bureaucratic details of how a mob hitman of how a mob hitman performs a hit or of how the cops of how the cops track him down, or details like that. And compare this compare this to what George Clooney doing push ups or something like that, or the the, yeah. kind of the kind of the fetishistic detail with which the uh, the um, the gun is assembled, the uh, the right, rifle right, right. Is, the rifle is assembled yeah. in um, in the American. Right, right, right. It really, I mean, there are a lot of. It's an interesting thing. We ought to do a uh, we ought to do a sort of correspondence between the uh, yeah. the two movies. But that's another story for another day. Well, hey guys, we managed to cover part of one category in the, <laughs> <laughs> which actually given our track record is phenomenal success for uh for this podcast um so if uh, if you'd like to join the conversation about oscar nominees or anything that we've said about sort of uh what uh, suboptimal viewing environments for cinema uh about piracy um <laughs> about Le Samurai, starring Alain Delon. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to make fun of Fr- for the French. They make some good movies. Um, you know what to do. You can uh, email us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com. You can call us at 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401, or text us at that number. But don't do that, because we'll never get to your... Um... <laughs> While we were recording, uh, I got actually an email at podcastedoverthinkingit.com uh, and this person asked a question about um, Mad Men, you know <laughs> and he said, could you overthink the most recent season of Mad Men? Since you will get to this email in 2015 uh, let me specify, I'm talking about Mad Men season 4 uh, <laughs> sincerely sincerely, Paul so Paul, there you go, we got to your email on the thing. Paul, Paul we already overthought the most recent season of Mad Men it was, it was an article on the site, Paul, read the website. Yeah. Well, the most recent season of Mad Men isn't out on DVD yet, right? I have a, a voucher from my sister that I'm, she's going to get it for me for Christmas. <laughs> I want to watch it. I just oh, don't really? have all these fancy things you guys all have, like television. I give a I watch uh, my TV on the computer. I usually give a voucher for hugs at Christmas or something like that, but I'm a cheap bastard. Um, hey, I mean, I'll, I've seen you outside the Port Authority bus terminal giving those out, man. <laughs> with it, with the yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a plethora of restraining orders, but other than that. Hey, I want to ask, um, based on some podcasts I've been listening to recently, uh, I, I gather that having people rate uh, this show on iTunes actually does something for our standings on iTunes. And since we grazed the – we were a barnacle on the bottom of the ship that is the, like, hot 200 uh, entertainment podcasts on iTunes, uh, we'd like to get back up there so that more people could um, could discover the site. Uh, so could you go onto the iTunes store and rate the Overthinking It podcast? You don't have to write a long review, though, if you want to. Um, it's wonderful. Uh, and we really appreciate those and all of you who have done them. But could, if you just click uh, – 
a number of stars. And hey, if it's five, who's it going to hurt? On the iTunes store for the Overthinking It podcast, that will help surface us in the lists I gather now from listening to um, to other people talk about it. And so if you could go and do that, that small thing for us, we would be very grateful. And like John said, read the site. Wait, you don't know about the site? You wonder what, what site it is? Well, let me tell you. It's www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Who's the best podcaster they have, Judge? Fendel is the best podcaster. The meanest one is Matt Rather, pitiless man, double tough, fear don't enter in his thinking. I'd have to say Mark Lee is the straightest. He brings those subjects in alive. But that Matt Rather, he's got grit. They say he's got true grit. Hey guys, I'm still in this lesbian crevasse. Somebody get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs>